The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. across a range of public bodies. We just keep appointing duffers. We've got to appoint the best people. Four. Even I was flabbergasted, frankly, by the way that the Bank of England pumped up the money supply and didn't seem to pay any attention to what the implications of all this would be. So when Princess Elizabeth ascended the throne, I think they'd just got rid of rationing books. And as she enters her twilight years, she'd probably just be reintroducing rationing books. I'd say on this Jubilee weekend, no good party ever started with a risk assessment. <laughs> One. We have liftoff. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. The Queen's 25th Jubilee was in 1977, Alison. Back then, as we remember, the UK economy was on its uppers. And there was a cost-of-living crisis with annual inflation at almost 16%. Britain was widely viewed to be poorly governed amidst the fag end of a Labour administration riven with doubts about the leadership of then-Prime Minister Sonny Jim Callaghan. Spallford, 45 years co-pilot to Her Majesty's 70th Platinum Jubilee, or Platy Jubes as you describe it, <laughs> and there are some pretty weird parallels. Again, this is a time of deep economic uncertainty. Again, inflation is soaring, with consumers feeling the squeeze as wages lag behind price rises. And again, there's a feeling the government's exhausted, with this time a Conservative Prime Minister, another natural communicator, who seems to have passed his sell-by date. This time last year, Alison, as we were grappling with Covid, the summer of 2022 offered the hope of freedom and prosperity – the soaring upside of our V-shaped recovery to come. Yet here we are, with the NHS struggling, our airports in turmoil and countless civil servants seemingly determined to stay at home. There's a sense that nothing works and the country's falling to bits. What can we do, Alison, to rouse this nation? Where's the UK's mojo? How do we get back into the national saddle? Even this weekend's jubilee seems marred by raw sibling squabbling and over-officious elf and safety bods clamping down on street parties. <laughs> the jubilee message should be rule Britannia co-pilot. But for many of us, it's Banana Republic Britain. I think if we had a proper Banana Republic, we'd have nicer weather, wouldn't we? <laughs> it's bloody freezing. Have you noticed? I know. It's supposed to be June. We're having very, very bad central heating battles at home, but I'll spay that. Can I just say, in three weeks, the days start getting shorter again. (laughs) I've even put my winter coat away. (laughs) I was literally wearing my horrible old gardening jumper last night. But as you point out so cunningly, the striking parallels with these landmarks in Her Majesty's reign. So when Princess Elizabeth ascended the throne, I think they just got rid of rationing books. And as she enters her twilight years, she'll probably just be reintroducing rationing books <laughs> on the way out. But as you say, Copilot, it's been an absolutely top week. So airport chaos, impossible to see a GP, 
at least six and a half million on the hospital waiting list, ambulances that don't arrive, police who've given up investigating most crimes, civil service departments that don't answer the phone, passport backlogs, you can't take a driving test for at least a year, rocketing fuel bills, you need to sell your house to be able to afford to fill up the car. And how lucky that we have got a Platinum Jubilee co-pilot and we still do pomp and circumstance very well. So to sum up, Terrific queen, shame about the country. It's awful, isn't it? I tell you what, we're going to have to go back to that other stable of 1970s Britain, punk. Bring up Johnny <laughs> Lydon, a.k.a. Johnny Rotten. Get him back. At least in the 70s, the music was good. It was. What's that I see on the horizon? Do I see the return of flares? Do I see the return of men called Malcolm and Roger? Oh, no, it's the Vic Sinex nasal spray. <laughs> of course you can, Malcolm. Oh, God. <laughs> So politically, I suppose that's where we are really with the big story. We touched on it last week, didn't we? That number 10 was hoping that the Sue Gray report would close down all talk of a leadership challenge. But now almost 50 Tory MPs, Liam, have gone public with criticism of the Prime Minister. Now, Boris defenders, of course, try to dismiss this as a Remainer plot. But this week we saw arch-Brexiteer and Boris defender Andrea Leadsom accusing the Prime Minister of unacceptable failings of leadership. This is something very interesting, Liam, from The Telegraph. Ben Riley smith our very good political editor, crunched some numbers on these 30 Tory rebels who are calling for the PM to go or have submitted a letter of no confidence. And it's a really interesting mixture. So there are 17 Brexiteers, 13 Remainers. Every intake in the last 40 years is represented except 2017. Some of the rebels have got small majorities, three are below a 1,000. Some have huge majorities. Eight of them have got 20,000 plus. Wow. But the key thing, Liam, is... This rebellion is not contained. It's not limited. It crosses the whole party. And listeners will remember, with the revolt against Theresa May's leadership, there was one very clear group, the Brexiteers, who wanted her to go over the Brexit means Brexit deal or the tragic lack Nothing of has changed. Nothing, Nothing has, has changed. changed. <laughs> the country that I love. <laughs> <laughs> she was so good, wasn't she? Actually, I'm starting to feel quite nostalgic. I like her, actually. Her, her, her level of solemn uselessness is starting to look positively attractive. So basically what I'm saying really is that, that there aren't any easy answers for Boris's team. There's no single group that they can placate by doing something. And as we're recording, we hear... Boris is hitting the phones, ringing round, trying to stem this. And, of course, the number of MPs who have called on the PM to resign is still far short of the 54 necessary that Sir Graham Brady needs before he'll declare a contest. But, again, just one final point. In 2018, with the May premiership, when 48 letters were needed then to trigger a vote on Theresa May's leadership and only 27 MPs had gone public against her when the vote was triggered. So I think that tells us, Liam, doesn't it, that what numbers we're actually hearing publicly could be very different from what lovely Sir Graham has got in his little box. That's right. 54 letters is a threshold in this parliament because that represents 15% of the parliamentary 
party. What then happens is there's a vote of Tory MPs and it's a simple majority that can remove the Prime Minister. Tory MPs, if it happened, would then select two MP candidates and then the Tory party across the country would effectively determine, if this happens soon, who the next Prime Minister is. That really could happen. I think you're right. I think that Graham Brady does a fabulous job of keeping his cards close to his chest. I think he kind of enjoys it a little bit, being really the... I genuinely believe he is the only person who knows. Yeah, he doesn't tell. His lovely wife, Victoria, came with him to our Planet Normal event, but she says he doesn't say anything to her either. So he is Mr. Top Secret, isn't he? What, how, Liam, what do you think? How do you think it's next week? How close do you think we are? Well, we were talking earlier, weren't we? And you made the point that the Tory MPs wouldn't ruin the Jubilee with this nonsense. No. But I think that's right. Once the Jubilee's over, then... All bets are off. I think war in Ukraine is saving Boris at the moment, not only because in the eyes of many people from across the political spectrum, he's done okay in terms of the war in Ukraine. Also, the notion that when the country is, we're not at military war, obviously, but we are certainly in an economic war at a time of national crisis, then a leadership election would look pretty indulgent. The cost of living crisis too, I think, is the same. And you're right, there isn't any kind of ideological purity to this group of rebels. You know, when John Redwood stood against Major, when Major did his Rose Garden declaration in the mid-90s, back me or sack me, and Redwood (laughs) stood. And he got 89 votes and he did pretty well. I was talking to him about it just Mm, last week, actually. I'd forgotten that. Yeah, John Redwood, he represented a definite wing of the party that was dismissed by nutters at the time, though the sun did come up with that fabulous headline, it's Redwood versus Deadwood. (laughs) (laughs) When the leadership candidates were (laughs) announced. But back then, you know, John Redwood, Teddy Taylor, that kind of crowd of the party, they were dismissed as nutters, Eurosceptics, bastards, as John Major famously called them. Of course, they had the upper hand in the argument in the end. They were the earliest Brexiteers. But there was an ideological purity to them, The really important thing that you mentioned there, Alison, in your summary, is that a lot of these MPs, it's not like they're going to lose their seats, right? They got big majorities. It's not like they need to distance themselves from Boris publicly in order to placate their angry electorates, but they're doing so anyway. I think a really important thing is the Tories are likely to wait for the upcoming by-elections, both Wakefield and Tiverton and Honiton down there in the West Country. You know, Wakefield could go either way. Wakefield was held by Mary Craig, a Labour MP, for a long time. Obviously, the existing Tory MP has left in disgrace under a very, very dark cloud. And it is literally in the balance, that seat. And he can afford to lose Wakefield. If he loses Tiverton and Honiton, which is a big 20,000-vote-plus majority, then... I think he's definitely toast. But I suspect that if we can avoid a situation where a leadership ballot is triggered by accident, which could happen because the letters are so uncoordinated, it's not like there's a group stalking him, controlling the number of letters. The letters could be fired in from anywhere, from all parts of the parliamentary party, as you say. It may be that we get a leadership ballot by accident, because, of course, Graham Brady isn't going to say to somebody, oh, I'm on 53, you're giving me this one. He's not going to do that. Yeah. If we avoid the scenario where there's a ballot by accident, I do think that most Tories will want to wait for those by-elections. Yeah, as you say, Liam, they're on the 23rd of June and it's really going to be 
two different tests of Boris, isn't there? There'll be a test of whether he can hold the blue wall, <laughs> which is Tiverton and Honiton, and that's got Neil Parrish, the rather sad chap caught looking at tractors in the House of Commons. Big Bertha. Dominator. <laughs> Dominator. So Parish had a stonking majority of 24,000, but I think we could be surprised. I think the Lib Dems could take it for all sorts of reasons. I wouldn't be at all surprised, and that would be, talk about cat amongst the pigeons, that would be absolutely, you know, panther amongst the pigeons, that would be. And Wakefield, which was a conservative gain in 2019, and the majority, as you say there, Liam, is is just over 3,500. But in its own way, that will be a test of whether Boris can hold the red wall, which gave him that fabulous majority less than three years ago. And hot off the presses, co-pilot, you're going to be impressed with this. We've got direct from the doorstep in Wakefield, Neil, not his real name for reasons that will become apparent, wrote to us, I'm a member of the Wakefield Conservative Association. I campaigned here last weekend. Alison, you are correct. We all like to hear that, don't we, K-Pilot? Boris is very unpopular on the doorstep. Lots saying they won't vote at all. I've told you this, Liam, haven't I? Our lot, my lot, my readers aren't going to vote. Knocking on doors, I met huge disappointment. Traditional Conservatives saying they won't vote because they don't recognise the government as Conservative. The newer Conservative voters have also so lost faith in the PM and they are citing lack of policies as well as party gate. People are not keen on Labour and their imposed candidate in Wakefield. My personal view is that people here would vote for a Conservative party with Conservative policies. So on behalf of both of us, Liam, let me say a big thank you to Neil for filling us in and he's offered to keep us posted. But Liam, this really chimes in with what I've been trying to bring up on the podcast a lot, you know, that the threat to the Conservatives is from within. The threat to Boris now, people might have forgiven the mistakes about during COVID, during lockdown, they might even have turned a blind eye to Partygate, but controlling immigration, soaring tax burden, the way they're splashing I mean, we're going to talk a bit more about the cost of living later, but splashing the cash around. And I don't know if you saw this this week, you know, for both Rishi and Boris, allegedly members of a Conservative government saying, oh, don't worry, there's nothing we won't do. We'll throw our arms around the country. You think, you know, you're a government, not Winnie the bloody poo. What's this? Throw our arms around the country. It's absolutely delusional. They cannot pay for everything, can they? I mean, so basically you've got the cost of living pressures and then you've got the ethical, the huge questions over integrity. And one of the big interventions this week, Liam, as well, was, again, we mentioned this earlier, didn't we? Lord Guite, the PM's ethics advisor, written the most hilarious passive-aggressive letter, didn't he, to Boris? I think Boris has got a problem with his own standards commissioner, as you say, publicly needling him, publicly distancing himself from the prime minister. And there is a real confluence of stuff happening now of course, there's lots of anger out there about party gates. You've also got lots of conservatives and lots of red wall voters, by the way, who are disillusioned at ongoing tax rises. Lots of working people 
they don't want to be on benefits. They want to keep their own money from their own hard work. Let's have a starting rate of tax of 20p in the pound. <laughs> Let's allow working people to keep more of their own money. Let's not clobber small businesses, small retailers, small factories with massive business rates. Let's try and get fuel bills down by lowering the amount of taxation that's taken from the forecourt when you fill up in petrol and diesel. Let's take off those ludicrous renewable energy subsidies on your electricity bills. Yeah, we can have a discussion about whether or not they should come back in the future, but they should for now be suspended. As we've said, Alison, often here on Planet Normal, even Germany, where the Greens are actually in government, have suspended their renewable energy subsidies. It is deeply regressive, i.e. unfair in terms of income inequality, to tax people on their fuel and energy bills in order to bring about a transition to renewable. Because disproportionately, the poor pay more uh, as a share of their income for their energy than for the well-off. Those must be suspended now. He must scrap VAT on fuel bills. Instead, we've got the Chancellor still executing some kind of overly complex shimmy by subsidising energy consumption through the energy companies themselves. Just if you took those levies off, the renewable levy and VAT, you're going to cut electricity bill by 30% straight away. Can I ask you, Liam, how much are they raking in from petrol in the forecourt right now? It must be an absolute fortune, isn't it? The government's had a windfall, at least in the high double-digit billions. It's hard to know specifically because the figures come out with a big delay. But clearly, as the price of petrol goes up, and it now costs 100 quid plus to fill up a family saloon that's a diesel car. A 55-litre tank is standard on a family saloon. We're not talking about a van, which is obviously much bigger, much more expensive. It's 100 quid plus to fill up a family saloon. That's on average. That's according to the AA, with diesel now more than 182 a gallon. On average, of course, in some places, and there has been price gouging by some retailers, profiteering diesels already above two pounds a litre. And as the price of diesel and petrol goes up, because 20% of what we pay is VAT, the government gets more money. Now, the government's been spinning this. It's been trying to confuse journalists. It doesn't take much to confuse most journalists when it comes to tax <laughs> issues, with all respect, present company accepted, of course. But they've been saying, oh, but the retailers haven't passed on that 5% reduction in fuel duty, which is separate from VAT, of course. And that's the case. But the government's still getting tons more money, tons more VAT from rising petrol and diesel prices because it's 20% of whatever the price is. Is There is money in the tank, to coin a phrase, to provide more assistance to ordinary people without more borrowing, without more money printing by stealth. But the thrust of the assistance should be via the tax system, not via spending. Just raise the starting rate of income tax, encourage people to get into work. We keep getting told that unemployment's really, really low. But it isn't really low if you understand the numbers, because many millions of people have left the workforce. So the number of people who are declared unemployed is a share of a workforce that itself is much diminished. So it's a lowish that that flatters the unemployment rate. And this is a problem. And it strikes me that there is now 
a lot of ideological heartache going on across ordinary conservatives, men and women, north and south, red wall, blue rule, and indeed across the parliamentary party. What kind of conservative government is this that is imposing the highest rate of tax, again, since the early 1950s or even the late 40s? This is not a conservative economic policy. And it seems that I mean, I said last weekend that I think Rishi Sunak's opened the gate to an era of Corbynomics. Why do I say that? Not only because his statement last week was on Jeremy Corbyn's birthday, but because if even the Tories are massively borrowing and stealthily money printing to spend money, then where does it end? Of course, Labour are going to do that. Everyone's going to do that. If you've got, you know, supposedly Thatcherite chancellor and a responsible prime minister overseeing these policies... Where does it end? Well, for me, it ultimately ends in a collapse of the pound and even higher inflation and much higher interest rates until we relearn the lessons that we had to learn again in the 1980s. I found myself, this sounds a bit mad coming from me, but I found myself actually thinking I'd prefer Gordon Brown because at least what Blair and Brown did felt like it was attached to a purpose. You know, there was a plan. There was an economic plan. I mean, the suggestions have come just come from Downing Street. Oh, we'll have a minister for growth. We'll have weekly slideshows in number 10 to <laughs> share the economic news. That's it. That's it. That's what we're missing. That's what we're missing. They've got it. Eureka. Well, listeners will know that you were runner-up to Allegra Stratton for the Downing Street. I was spoke. never runner-up. I was asked in so they could pretend there was a competition before... The person that was always going to get the job was anointed. And it strikes me that the idea of weekly growth seminars will go the same way as the idea of daily Downing Street briefings with a spokesperson. It's going to be a bad idea. I mean, the currency markets will go ballistic every time that this press conference happens. Some of us would have paid good money to have the co-pilot doing his not the nine o'clock news version of the economic growth <laughs> charts. That would have been, can you imagine? Would have been so brilliant. I'd love to have heard you. It would have added to the gaiety of the nation. I think we can... <laughs> it would have certainly would have added to my gaiety. Planet Normal listeners would have loved it. I think the pandemic has shaped attitudes to work for good and for ill. I'm quite a big supporter of working from home. I don't think all of us who work from home are a dreadful layabout. But I was talking to a guy this week who has a medium-sized accountancy firm, and he said he's got staff who are literally dictating terms to him, saying, oh, we'll be working between Tuesday and Thursday between the hours of 11 and 3, and I'll be taking six weeks consecutive holiday. And I said, what are you saying to them? And he said, I can't say anything because there aren't any other people available for the jobs. So as you say, Liam, this is interesting, isn't it? This employment situation is if people can't get stuff. And I think what we're seeing, this absolute chaos with the airlines, as far as I understand it, is that they sacked a lot of people. The airlines, I, I just read today, Liam, that they were, the government bunged the airline industry 8 billion quid during the pandemic. They sack lots of people. They haven't rehired them fast enough. 
Apparently, there's lots of security questions and assessment they have to go through. So they can't even, you know, they can't get people back into the front line, which is causing dreadful upset for people going on holiday. So I do think that there've been a lot of knock-on. I mean, we've talked about the tragic effects of lockdown on children and elderly people, but I think the impact on the world of work, do you think is now working its way through the system and revealing itself in very, very dark colours? We've spent much of the last 100 plus episodes of Planet Normal talking about the pandemic, haven't we, Alison? Even though we didn't launch it as a covid era podcast because we launched it before covid and of course many things have changed we've talked about the collateral damage we've talked about people that missed health appointments breast scans and all the rest of it ghastly outcomes implications of the pandemic on people's educations collapsed businesses in a sense the world will never be the same post the pandemic but what's also happened is You know, I think our high street has been hollowed out faster than it otherwise would have been. I think there's been big structural changes happening across certain industries that have been accelerated and accentuated, changing outcomes forever in a way that they wouldn't be changed unless the pandemic happened. And I do think that this working from home pattern, this trend, while of course there are many upsides to it, this sort of jacket on the back of the chair culture was ridiculous. You know, the glowering boss watching people clock in and clock out was ridiculous. Of course, there are upsides in terms of people commuting less, in terms of being able to live further away, getting more space in a home that's more remote from where you work if you're only traveling there two or three days a week. Of course, there are many upsides and there are many with the right attitude, there are many professions, and it is mostly professions, you can do remotely. And all that's a good thing. But there's such a danger here that we've got such inequality in the UK. You've got a kind of laptop class. They're very pleased with themselves. They loved lockdown, and they can have a really nice life working two or three days a week from their home, which of course means you don't work as hard. I mean, I don't care what anyone says. There's a difference for most people by being in the office and things happen in an office, communication that happens, creative sparks that happen. But my fear is that we have a two-tier society where you have hands-on workers, customer-facing people, manufacturers, practical people, the trades rather than the professions. They're going out to work every day. They're getting up at six o'clock in the morning and then you have this more leisured class. It feels more like Victorian or Edwardian Britain rather than the UK in the 21st century. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper, and you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show, mine. As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics, wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Now, Roger Bootle's among the UK's most influential economists. After an early academic career at Oxford, Roger was appointed by Chancellor Ken Clark as one of the Treasury's seven wise men, two of whom were women, even though it was in the 90s, and he went on to set up the consultancy Capital Economics. 
In 2012, a team led by Roger won the Wolfson Prize. That's the second biggest accolade in economics after the Nobel Prize. Roger's also a long-standing and highly respected Telegraph columnist. His weekly missives, analytically sharp but always user-friendly, appearing in the paper every Monday. I've followed Roger's writings for years, and it seemed a good time amidst this cost-of-living squeeze to invite him aboard the Rocket Allison. I started by asking Roger Bootle what he thought about where Chancellor Rishi Sunak has set the UK's economic policy dials. Well, I'm not a happy bunny, I have to say. I mean, there are elements of this where I give him high marks, but overall, I'm dismayed. And in particular, the thing that bothers me is the increase in taxes, uh, and particular taxes too, corporation tax and national insurance. But in general, no, I'm, I'm not pleased. It strikes me that the Chancellor is a bit like Gordon Brown, very, very clever, clever with the details, handing out lots of money, but taking back lots of money as well. For instance, increasing national insurance contributions for employers and employees, and then borrowing and even printing more money and giving it back to households. Why do you think it is that this Conservative Chancellor, who's prided himself on admiring the likes of Nigel Lawson and Margaret Thatcher, can't just cut taxes and boost the economy that way? Well, I'm as puzzled as the next person, and I'm really very disappointed in him. To be fair, you know, it's been an extraordinary period, hasn't it? And I don't want to criticise him for dishing out large amounts of money during the COVID pandemic, although much of it, I think, was not done well. But with regard to the taxes, I think part of the problem is the influence of the Treasury, the malign influence of the Treasury. The fact is, and I'm very far from being the first person to say this, the Treasury is in essence, a finance ministry. It sees its role as raising taxes, keeping the borrowing down, forcing the debt down. And I think when it saw large amounts of spending coming through the pandemic and other issues, it sort of reverted to its inner type and said, crikey, we really must make sure that borrowing and debt come down. And that means, they argued, that taxes had to go up. And I think Sunak was unduly influenced by that. I would say he was captured by the Treasury machine. Your latest Telegraph column, and you write in the Telegraph every Monday, and we'll put the link to your writings in the show notes of this episode, Roger. Your latest Telegraph column talks about the windfall tax. You say that the Tories are transforming Britain into a handout state, and this largesse means it will be hard to resist pressure for further giveaways. So you are expecting more borrowing, more money printing, more giveaways in the autumn then, Roger? Well, I mean, let's separate the question of the windfall tax versus the various handouts. On the latter question, what worries me is that if economic conditions don't improve and we've got the same political pressures then as we have now, I don't see that the chance is going to stop. What happens, for instance, if energy prices go up or even if they just don't come down very much? I think he's going to be under enormous pressure to give out more money. Now, some sort of relief is, I think, justified, particularly on poorest households. But he can't go on forever like this. And the contrast, it seems to me, is very striking between the handouts overall, on the one hand, and then this tax on working people through national insurance on the other, and the combination of the national insurance contribution increases for employers, the increases in corporation tax, and the windfall tax on business, none of this, I think, adds up to really a very promising or coherent economic policy. 
You've written extensively over many, many years about inflation, Roger. Let's be clear. There was an inflation problem here in the UK a long time before Russia invaded Ukraine, right? I think that's right, yeah. So outline the nature of that problem for us and how you think the Bank of England handled itself during the long, long months of 2021 when people like you and me were writing that there was inflation coming down the track and the Bank of England were calling us alarmist and saying this inflation is just transitory. Yeah, there are two parts to this inflation, and I think there usually are. And when it's particularly dangerous and damaging, then I think there always are. That's to say what's happening on the cost or supply side and what's happening with regard to aggregate demand. And on the cost side, we've been subject to a series of shocks. Most recently, of course, the various things associated with the war in Ukraine. But as you rightly say, Liam, it didn't start there. There were factors earlier on stemming from the pandemic, problems with the supply chain and so on and so forth. I think the bank was, what's the word, complacent, I think probably unduly influenced by the experience of a few years ago when we had increasing commodity prices, which pushed the inflation rate in this country up to just over 5%, and then the rate fell back again. And it was very slow to pick up on the difference in the labour market and the difference in the position with regard to aggregate demand. Now, as you know, Liam, I'm certainly not a monetarist. That's to say one of those economists who think everything is explained by and depends upon everything nominal, anyway, movements in the money supply. I've never been of that sort. But even I was flabbergasted frankly, by the way that the Bank of England pumped up the money supply and didn't seem to pay any attention to what the implications of all this would be. It's hilarious, really, going back to the 1980s, when in those days, the government and the Bank of England were concerned only with movements in the money supply, and so were the markets. And we get to a position not that many years later, when the bank doesn't give any attention whatever to monetary movements. This, I thought, was absolutely bonkers. But then over and above that, I think there's something wrong with the way, not just with the way the bank thinks about these things, but the way it operates. In particular, I think it pays too much attention to its own models and not enough attention to what's going on in the world outside as conveyed by what ordinary people and what business people say and think. It was obvious to me as I went around the country talking to various business people, they'd say to me, look, this inflation is going to be really big. We've suffered these enormous cost increases. We're going to have to pass it on. What's more, in these conditions, these price rises are going to stick. Now, if they were saying that to me, I'm sure they were saying it to the Bank of England, but they didn't listen. They certainly didn't listen. And you've touched on quantitative easing there, Roger. I mean, I must say, I consider you and me among the really small handful of economic commentators in the UK who've really tried to dig down into what quantitative easing is, to not just accept it because the Bank of England says it will be fine, to try and point out some of the drawbacks of quantitative easing. It seemed that the UK Bank of England, the government had weaned itself off quantitative easing many years after the financial crisis from 2009 to sort of 2017, 2018. And then during the pandemic, we did more quantitative easing in 18 months than we'd done in the whole of the previous decade. That has to be inflationary in the end, doesn't it? Well, I think in the circumstances, that's right. I wouldn't be bothered myself or derive messages exclusively from movements in the money supply alone. But what I thought was so 
interesting and potentially dangerous about this condition that you describe is this money wasn't remaining in the banking system, which is what happened after the financial crisis. It wasn't just the bank buying securities in the market and then this money landing up with the banks. This is corresponding to a massive fiscal deficit with the Chancellor handing out large amounts of money and therefore the money landed up in the bank accounts of ordinary people and non-financial businesses. This gives the system the wherewithal to sustain higher aggregate demand. And then all this in the context of these big cost rises, which I referred to earlier. So I do think this was an error of judgment. It seems to me it speaks to a general British phenomenon, actually, with regard to economic issues in general, and I think probably other matters too. This fundamental flabbiness about issues, not subjecting policies to detailed, careful debate and examination. Things were just accepted. I mean, there are some things we should mention along the way. For instance, there was the House of Lords Economic Committee report not so long ago, and don't forget the previous governor of the Bank of England, Lord King, sits on that. And that report, as you know, was pretty excoriating about QE and suggesting that... They called it a dangerous addiction, didn't they? Exactly, a dangerous addiction. And I think both of us gave evidence to that committee, didn't we? And the Bank of England Governor, Andrew Bailey, dismissed the report, dismissed the report because it used the word addiction on the basis that drug addicts might be triggered. (laughs) Yes. What's particularly concerning here for the bank, or ought to be concerning for the bank is that effectively, of course, as you've already referred to, Liam, what the bank was doing was financing this enormous budget deficit that the government was running. Now, the bank, and indeed this is true of other central banks and economists, took refuge in the idea that this financing wasn't direct and therefore doesn't count as monetary financing. You now get into all sorts of theological debates corresponding to, you know, how many angels can dance on the head of a bin. As far as I'm concerned, okay, the bank didn't directly hand over the money to the Treasury. What happened is the Treasury issued bonds and then the bank bought the bonds and thereby handed the money over to the Treasury. But I really don't think that this operationally comes to that much difference. There's an interesting question about how independent the bank really was. I think probably it was. That's to say, in doing this policy, it wasn't responding to some sort of diktat or even an encouragement from the Treasury. But it doesn't look very good, does it? It really doesn't look very good. So if you're trying to convince people that you're on top of things and you are independent and they should not raise their inflation expectations, when you have the bank falling over itself to buy all these gilts being issued by the government. Boy, it really looks very bad. I wanted to ask you, Roger, there's a lot of debate now about the Bank of England's independence. I wondered if you agreed with my view that the Bank of England's independence isn't the problem. The problem is that the bank should be sticking to its knitting and actually bearing down seriously on inflation, not worrying about posturing in terms of environmental policy, not worrying so much about its public relations efforts. Of course, the bank has to be accountable to democratically elected politicians, but it only works, doesn't it, if it's a technocratic organisation that's willing to take decisions that are right for the long-term health of the economy rather than short-term boosting of demands and government opinion polls. Well, I very much 
do agree with that. There was a flurry of commentary not long ago suggesting that, particularly from various Conservative MPs, suggesting that the bank shouldn't be left independent, or some people said it really wasn't independent. I think that's wrong. I mean, if both you and I remember the bad old days before it was independent. That was shocking. Absolutely. I remember one occasion when, I can't remember which Prime Minister it was, was it John Major? He ordered a rate cut because a Conservative MP had apparently committed suicide or died in very peculiar circumstances and there was a very dangerous febrile mood. So what do you do? You cut interest rates. Not to mention, of course, the frequent cuts in interest rates during Conservative Party Conference Week. I mean, this was an absurd regime and the current regime is much better. But it does all depend, I think, upon the people involved, the governor himself, other members of the MPC, and the way they conduct themselves. And my own view is that things have got a lot worse since Lord King left the office. Now, admittedly, he himself said for much of his time, monetary conditions were particularly benign and the bank had a comparatively easy job. But let's be fair about that. And Andrew Bailey has been landed with a pretty ghastly situation. Having said that, I think there is this, as you rightly say, this confusion of objectives, you know, climate change, the environment, heaven knows whatever else, whereas the bank is charged with keeping inflation at 2%. And having regard to that, looking at the government's economic policy overall and trying to boost employment and output, but the inflation objective is primary. I think it's taken its eye off the ball. But equally, I just don't think it's approached the inflation issue with enough scepticism with regard to the conventional wisdom and with regard to its own economic models. There's a groupthink, frankly, on the MPC. It doesn't have a diverse enough membership. They all essentially come from the same stable. Now, in particular, why isn't there a monetarist on the MPC? If there had been a monetarist, a good one, then surely that person would have been banging on about the dangers created by this massive increase in the money supply. That brings me on to something personal I want to ask you, Roger, if I may. You've encouraged my economic journalism over many years, and I'm grateful to you for that. But I, in turn, have watched your career. You've been extremely successful. You set up a superb economic consultancy and you sold that. But you've never really been let into the policymaking magic circle, have you, Roger? Despite your superb writing skills, your media skills, you've been at the forefront of policymaking commentary for a long time. Ken Clark let you into the magic circle. You were one of his wise men back in the day. But you've never been on the Monetary Policy Committee. And I think a lot of people wonder why that is. Surely they need people like you, Roger, on the Monetary Policy Committee, because you are the credible grit in the oyster. Well, Liam, it's very kind of you to say those things about me. I was appointed by Ken Clark, actually, at the end of his tenure to be one of the government's so-called seven wise men. And in fact, before I was able to sit on that body, the Conservatives lost the general election and then Gordon Brown abolished that committee. Subsequently, I was appointed an advisor to the House of Commons Treasury Committee. In fact, I was an advisor to it for just about 20 years. I, I think this is all part, you know, of what I was talking about earlier on with regard to this notion of there being a, an inner circle of people who come from very similar backgrounds, think in a very similar way. And I'm really not like that, I suppose. I'm a bit of an outsider. In particular, I've never been an econometrician and I haven't got much time for econometric models. And certainly if I were in the bank, I would 
treat whatever the Bank of England model said with, well, not just a pinch of salt, but several barrels of it. My approach has always been to pay a good deal of attention to history. And I think this is fundamental here, by the way. I'm not sure how many people on the MPC had a clear grasp of recent economic history. They were too influenced, I think, by what happened at the time of the financial crisis. And in particular, Andrew Bailey and others were saying things like, look, this is a cost phenomenon. We can't control the costs. That's all very well. But anyone who knew the 1970s ought to know that there you've got two huge bursts of cost price inflation as a result of the two oil prices hikes. But there was a monetary question as well. How should central banks respond to that? And some responded by being pretty accommodating, Britain and America, and others responded by being very tough, Germany. And the outcomes were very different. So my approach would be informed by economic history, in close touch with what business people were actually saying. My view is that the current economic establishment on the contrary, is just overwhelmed by too much attention paid to econometric models. I think that's right. And I very much agree with your thoughts on groupthink. And yet I look at the MPC now and with all respect to the people on the MPC, there doesn't seem to be many people who are known for their independent mindedness. Roger Bootle, do you regret the fact that despite your huge business success, despite your success as a journalist, you've been required reading on The Telegraph for many years, despite everything you've achieved, that that policymaking door hasn't been opened to you? Yes, I think to some extent I do regret that. I did have a lot of exposure to politicians through the House of Commons Treasury Committee, and I enjoyed that very much. And I've maintained links with a number of politicians from all of the major parties. But if I look back on my career and think, you know, what could I have done? Where is there a missing link? I think, yes, not having been on the inside track, at least for some part of that period, yeah, I do regard that as a major gap. Well, I think that's Britain's loss, Roger Bootle. Thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. You're very kind, Liam. Thank you. That was a fantastic interview, Liam. It was great to hear two fantastic economics commentators chewing the fat. And um, where have we heard this before? The Bank of England pays too much attention to its own models and not what's happening to normal businesses up and down the country. Remind us of our mates on Sage, doesn't it? Staring at the models and not looking out of the window to see how many people have actually got COVID. I think that's very true in his comments on the Bank of England, he for many years was the most influential economist in the city of London, which is the financial capital of the world. He's a very, very big figure in economics. Just the fact that what I just said is true means he should have been on the MPC to bolster the MPC's credibility. He is a bit of an outsider, grammar school boy, humble backgrounds, got himself to Oxford, stayed around as an academic, very, very good communicator. And it's not like he's a maverick. <laughs> he's fully toilet trained in polite <laughs> society. You know, he's a very credible guy. They've just never let him in. And it's mad. They've never let him in because he's too clever and he's too independent minded. But he's precisely the kind of person who should be in you know, public life, in policy making. We've got lots of people like this in the UK who never get a look in to these exalted, gilded circles. The mind boggles. Why? He was also very pro-Brexit. I remember appearing with Roger on a 
rather challenging panel at the Uber Liberal Hay Festival when we were the two little Brexiteers nobly fighting the cause. So maybe he is part of the awkward squad. But I don't know, Liam, he speaks in such a mellifluous and clever way, but I thought what he was saying was very damning. He said, I'm dismayed. It seems quite scary. What would you put the chances of us having a recession now at? The trouble is that once you get inflation in the system, once you get wages lagging, price rises and spending power, for want of a better phrase, wanes, the economy automatically slows down. That's why you so often get inflation combined with an economic slowdown and possibly with a recession. I think it's wrong to say it's all the government's fault, it's all the Bank of England's fault. These are obviously very, very difficult times. But I do think that the Bank of England has failed to step up to the challenge. I do think there were months and months and months there where they lost credibility because people like me, people like Roger, were making extremely well-sourced, well-reasoned arguments about why inflation was going to go up a lot. This is months before the war in Ukraine. Mm. And we were literally laughed at. We were literally laughed at. When our names would come up in press conferences, there'd be a sort of snorting and derision. How we feel about that personally is less important than the implications on policy. And I'm just having a look at some other public appointments going on now. I won't embarrass the people by naming them until I've seen how they actually perform. But across a range of public bodies, we just keep appointing duffers. We've got to appoint the best people. It's mad. It's so infuriating. We need all hands to the pump at the UK at the moment. We need to marshal our entrepreneurial, our intellectual forces and talents. And it seems that we're not. We keep appointing very, very mediocre people to very, very senior positions and I thought that under the Conservatives, that would change. I thought they would get hold of this public appointment process and actually start appointing some people with a range of views. I don't want any particular set of ideological or political approaches to the world to be represented. I want a range, but above all, I want people with intellect and skill and independence of thought. And that, I'm afraid, across British public life, both elected and unelected, is sadly lacking. How dare they snort at my learned co-pilot? We're going to get you to be the governor of the Bank of England if we have to have a hit squad to take out all the duffers, Halligan. We should probably just do a little bit of a nod towards the Jubilee celebrations. I'm going to be writing to Telegraph front pages, no pressure, over the next four days. Obviously, the Queen celebrating 70 astonishing years on the throne. I thought you'd be amused, co-pilot, that up and down the country there's going to be about 16,000 street parties. But guess who's been trying to derail the celebrations? None other than all our local councils who have been issuing 23-page events management plans and risk assessments. (laughs) There was a lady, she wanted to have a small party on her street Decorum Borough Council sent this terrible amount of paperwork asking her for details of, quote, security provision, severe weather mitigation and a counter-terrorism plan. (laughs) Those trifle-related terrorist incidents and and an ever-present danger, Halligan, in the Combe Counties, aren't they? It's a code red. 
<laughs> Code Red Jelly. <laughs> I once saw in a pub loo some graffiti. It's the place where I get all my best lines. You get them from Planet Normal listeners. It was, drink alcohol because no good conversation ever started with a salad. <laughs> and I'd say on this Jubilee weekend, <laughs> no good party ever started with a risk assessment. <laughs> It certainly didn't. I hope everyone's everyone's. I'll be I'll be chained to the computer, but I hope everyone's out getting cheerfully pissed and toasting our fantastic queen. Now it's time for our listener emails. Please keep your fantastic messages coming. As you know, we love reading them and draw on them heavily in lots of our ideas. Less of the we and the hour, okay? <laughs> Crikey. Drawing me into your circle of larceny. (laughs) Enough of that. Phil in Cornwall. Hello, Alison and Liam. I hope you'll be discussing Stella Creasy's Women Can Have Penises comment this week. As such a view is not normal, not on this planet at least. Stella then started to moan about the reaction she received on Twitter, despite having stated something so earth-shatteringly stupid. I hope you will tell her in your next episode that if she says women can have penises and then moans about the reaction she gets, perhaps as a woman who can have a penis, she should grow a pair, literally. Well, this is a topic, Liam, we're going to definitely come back to, aren't we? Thanks, Phil, for that. I think as long as you've got prominent Labour politicians saying things like that, then the Conservatives are more likely to win the next general election. Interesting that Annalise Dodds, who's the chair of the Labour Party, actually came out publicly to disagree with Stella Creasy. This is from Michael. Dear co-pilots, for those who still champion the chumpin' number 10, fewer by the day it seems, the true significance of the Partygate revelations is often overlooked and must therefore be hammered home. And it's this. It's absolutely clear that those who took part knew perfectly well that the risk to their health was in no way as dire as was nightly intoned by Johnson and his doomster sidekicks. (laughs) Indeed, it was known to them at the time of the parties that 92% of the severest outcomes of COVID affected only 15% of the population, the very elderly and those with other health problems like diabetes, heart disease and so on. Therefore, the draconian restrictions placed on the entire population were based on a fraud, a lie, says Mike. The vast majority, 85%, were at virtually no risk at all of any worsen outcome than may have been occasioned by, say, the annual winter flu virus. And yet this lie led to the destruction of thousands of businesses, to countless families denied the right to see much-loved parents, children, or even the right to mourn their dead. A truly shocking outcome based, as must be repeated, on a deliberate falsehood. Apart from the terrible personal losses, the country's also been landed with a debt totaling many billions, a debt which will be hung around the necks of those of our children and grandchildren for decades. It's impossible to overstate the damage this apology for a Prime Minister has inflicted on our country. There are those who, while not openly supporting Johnson, do suggest there is no better candidate to secure a Tory victory at the next election, that there's no one to replace him. Hmm, they'd soon find a replacement if he were caught on the front bench scrolling through a bit of (laughs) porn on his phone. Co-pilots, keep up the good work. I love Planet Normal. Listen to it every Saturday. Sad, divorced man that I am while doing the ironing. Hasta la vista. Miguel. Oh, well done, Mike, doing the ironing. All I can say to that is if we're having a question about the plight of the Conservative Party, is the answer to that question Jeremy Hunt? (laughs) And on that skimmed milk bombshell. 
Well, I must report that as we're recording this, the phrase platy tubes has just overtaken platinum jubilee on Twitter. So it's <laughs> trending, or at least that's what the young people tell me, whatever that means. <laughs> Here's a couple of quick ones, Alison. Dr. Mark got in touch to say, I'm sorry to say my NHS trust is still insisting on lateral flow tests, mask wearing and limited visiting, as well as a pre-op isolation policy leading to many difficulties filling operation lists. We currently have just two patients admitted for COVID and five with COVID out of 800 plus beds. When I asked the management team how this could be justified, they said they believe the pandemic is still in place despite so few patients in the hospital and also that every other trust is doing the same and they don't want to be the ones out of step. I am not making this up. And finally from me, Jane. Why are the British people putting up with this dire lack of health care? Are we so downtrodden and beaten that we would just rather die rather than complain? I do think the English in particular are a bit like that. <laughs> what was it, GK Chesterton? <laughs> We're very, very angry and we haven't spoken yet. <laughs> you do wonder when the tipping point will come with the NHS. Yeah. I, think, I think we'll be watching that over the next few months. Here's a couple of, in response to my moaning about the dog-related cost of living, Martin says, I sympathise with Alison having to fork out £50 a pot for Bingo, her cockapoo's haircut. This is what my Airedale Terrier cost me every six weeks, now extended to seven as times are hard. I did buy a pair of electric clippers during the countless lockdowns, but the results were not ideal. If you do choose this route, the benefit will not only be fiscal, but putting hair from two or four-legged family members round garden hostas protects them from hungry slugs and snails. Beth says we are long-time fans of Planet Normal and Tory Graph readers. I had a clipping crisis for my sprocker last year, so decided that DIY is the way to go. The best therapy session I could imagine. I bought a set of cordless clippers for £100 on Amazon and both my dog, Watson, and I enjoyed the experience. We got more confident as we went along. And when I groomed our lurcher, Sherlock... Watson came back for more. Two sessions and it's paid for the clippers already. And the birds took all the clippings for their nests. Thanks for keeping us all sane, says Beth. And finally, Halligan, you'll like this, from Derek. A word of advice, Alison. Despite the cost of living crisis, do not put bingo on cheaper dog food. The decision would backfire in a major way and render the Pearson sitting room uninhabitable. <laughs> and on that bombshell, literally. <laughs> That's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our Sanctuary of Sweet Reason, our flying refuge of Reason Views. Email of the week, it's your turn. I think from Mike, actually. That was a yeah. very, very good email. So, Mike, will you please send us your address and details and we will get a fantastic Planet Normal mug if you all enjoy planet normal please leave us a rating and a review on apple podcasts or spotify it really does help other people to find us so the planet normal family can grow do keep emailing us your inputs the lifeblood of planet normal the rocket fuel that fills our engine as we blast off each week and as we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet earth comes back into view thanks as ever to our producers isabel bouchard Elliot lampet and our editor zoe hitch Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's happy Platinum Jubilee. And it's goodbye from him. (laughs) 